What was the best day of your life? I want you to think about that for a moment. What was the best day of your life? For me, August 1st, 2008, it's the day that me and Ashley got married. We started dating when we were 19 years old, got married at the age of 22, young, broke college kids who had no clue what we were doing, but we decided we were going to do it together. And so we got married. That was the best day of my life, closely followed by the birth of my two daughters, Esther's son and Ruth Moon. Those are the best days of my life. What is the best day of your life? Was it the day you got married? Was it the day that you had your children? Was it the day you met Jesus, got baptized? Was it the day that you graduated college, landed that dream job? Was it the day that you held your grandchildren for the first time? Like, what was the best day of your life? Think about that for just a moment. And now I want you to think about the worst day of your life. What was the worst day of your life? For me, before Esther and Ruth were born, worst day was in Houston. Me and Ashley went to go get an ultrasound, and the doctor said, I'm sorry, you've miscarried. It's the worst day of my life. What was the worst day of, of your life? Was the, the worst day the death of a loved one? I know some of you in the room, you've buried spouses. You've buried parents. You've buried your own children. I know others in the room, it was when the doctor said it's cancer. Or when your boss said you're fired. I know that for some of you, it's when your spouse said, I want a divorce. It was the day that everything came crashing down, the day that everything began to fall apart. I want you to think about the worst day of your life. See, in the church, we love to talk about our best days. We love hearing sermons about our best days. You can do it. You're more than a conqueror. You are the head, not the tail. You are the first, not the last. We love hearing sermons about the best is yet to come. And while those things are true, I know that's not where a lot of you are at today. Today, you might be feeling the worst day of your life, the worst time of your life, the worst stretch and season of your life. See, we're really good at showing the world our best days. We love hanging out with friends and telling them all of our victories, all of the mountains we've climbed, all the battles we won, and all the giants that we've slayed. We love taking pictures of our best days and putting them on Instagram so everybody can scroll through and double tap and they can tell us how awesome and wonderful and amazing and special we are. We love to show people our best days and we tend to celebrate those very publicly while we suffer the worst days alone and very privately. What was the, the, the worst day of your life? What I love so much about the Bible is the Bible is just honest. I love that when we study in the book of Mark, it doesn't just show us the best days of Jesus' life. Here's Jesus walking on water. Here's Jesus feeding 5,000. Oh, Moses and Elijah came down and saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yay, Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. The Bible doesn't just show us the best days of Jesus' life. It also shows us the worst days of Jesus' life. And that's the day that we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 26. We're going to look at the worst day of Jesus' life. You know, as a pastor, I have one of the best jobs in the world. 
I get to see people on the best day of their life. Just last night, we had a wedding here at the church. It was the best day. I think in the last week, we've had four babies born in the church. I mean, that's the best day. I'm starting marriage counseling with a couple. That's going to be a best day. But I also know that for every baby that is born, there's also a miscarriage in the church as well. That not only do I get a front row seat to the best days, but oftentimes, as soon as I get up from that meeting, I walk into the next meeting and then it's someone sitting down and says, my dad died. My spouse is leaving me. I lost my job. Doctor called, they don't know what it is. I'm still suffering from fibromyalgia and chronic pain. I don't know if I can keep doing this any longer. And some days I get to celebrate with people and then other days I weep with people. But most of the time that's the same day for me. It's the same day for a lot of us. I love what Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Life, he says, he says that people tend to think that life is a series of peaks and valleys, highs and lows, and the good and bad back to back. He said, but I've learned that that's not true. That instead of being up and down, it's really side by side. It's the good and the bad happening simultaneously. And that's what I've found in my life. That's what I found as your pastor. And that's also what we're going to see happening in the text today. As Jesus, he gets alone with God on the worst day of his life, and he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn in Mark 14 as we continue through the book of Mark called The Simple Gospel. And the sermon title today is called Jesus Prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's what I want to do today. I want to give you permission. I want to give you permission to emotionally connect with where Jesus is at. I want you to give you permission to enter into that garden with him. I want to give you permission to be sad. I want to give you permission to be sorrowful. I want to give you permission to be honest with your emotions. I want to give you permission to take off the mask and stop faking it and get honest with yourself and honest with God. And I want you to enter into the garden and I want you to learn from Jesus' worst day of his life. What do you do on the worst day of your life? You let Jesus take your hand and lead you through the garden moments through the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's what Jesus is going to do here for us today as we see the worst day of Jesus' life in the Garden of Gethsemane. The first thing we do on the worst day of our lives, what do we do? Well, first is we prepare. The first point, if you're taking notes, is Jesus, he starts off by preparing. Look what it says in verse 26. And when they sung a hymn, they're laughing, they're singing, eating, having Passover, singing worship songs to God. They went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There he's talking about his death, burial and his resurrection. Verse 23, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Peter, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he doubled down and emphatically, if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same. It's like a group gathering. They're like, yeah, yeah, Peter, you tell them. Yeah, we're never going to fail you. We're never going to disappoint you. They're all like rallying each other up, pumping each other up. Let's go. Like that's the disciples right there. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not prepared. You're not ready to endure 
what is about to happen. See, not only is this the worst day of Jesus' life, but we also know that this is the last day of Jesus' life. That Jesus is going to the cross where he's going to be crucified and die for the sins of the world. This is the last day of Jesus' life. For those of you who are new, we've been studying the book of Mark now for 60 sermons about three years in. And in Mark chapter 1, we see the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark 1 through 11 takes place over a three-year period where he's preaching, teaching, healing, revealing the kingdom of God, walking on water, performing miracles, raising the dead. We see in Mark 1 through 11 the best days of Jesus' life. Like when you were in Sunday school and you learned all the stories, that was out of Mark 1 through 11, the best days of Jesus' life. Mark 11 marks the last week of Jesus' life where he rides in to Jerusalem and he comes in on a donkey, what is known as the triumphant entry. The next day he goes in, he flips over the tables, kills a tree, casts out the money changers. Following that, he goes back into the temple on Wednesday and he preaches a 10 hour long sermon. Y'all thought my sermon was long? Okay, I'm just trying to be a little bit like Jesus, all right? So Jesus preached a 10-hour-long sermon where he's getting in arguments and fights with the religious leaders and the temple controversies. After that is finished, he goes up to the top of the Mount of Olives and he, he prophesies about the end of the world in a series we did called Living in the Last Days. That's Mark chapter 13, the mini apocalypse. After that, Jesus is tired, so he takes a day off on Thursday, hangs out with his friends, enjoys uh, fellowship. The woman with the alabaster jar. She breaks the jar. And what it says is that she is preparing him for his burial. Afterwards, they celebrate the Passover, the last supper. He institutes Holy Communion. And here we see in 426, what do they do? They break out in a song. They just start singing, like their belly's full, their hearts are full. They just start singing, praising God, singing a song together. What we see, this is probably one of the best days of Jesus' life. Good food, good people, singing songs. I mean, that's an amazing day. And at the end of Thursday night marks where our story begins today. It's Friday. It's the last day of Jesus' life. See, sometimes the good and the bad, they happen at the same time. Sometimes it's the best day, and then very quickly it becomes the worst day. See, something that we don't have that Jesus did have, a luxury Jesus had that many of us didn't have, is that we, we can't plan for the worst days of our life. You can't plan for bad days, but you can prepare for them. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. You can't plan for bad days, but you can prepare for them. Like nobody can like plan for a bad day. Like, hey, what are you doing Tuesday? Uh, suffering, I guess. Um, hey, hey does, um, does pain and hardship and depression work really well for you? No, I think I'm busy on Tuesday. Could you try half past never? Okay, sorry, that's not going to work. We're going to have to schedule you in. All right, Thursday after work. Could we just get the suffering over with? Like, you can't plan for bad days. But here's what you can do. You can prepare for bad days. See, Jesus, his entire life was preparing for this moment. Luke 2.52 tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature with favor of God and with others. Even as a little boy, he is preparing for these days. See, God sent his son Jesus to enter into this world. And this is the whole reason that Jesus came. This day, Jesus has been preparing. He has been looking forward to. He has been moving forward to his last day. 
When Jesus was a, a little boy in Nazareth, he, he learned and he had to develop relationships. He had a mother and a father. He had brothers and sisters. He did all of that without sin. As Jesus enters into his ministry, all of that was preparing him for that moment. And then he comes into his ministry. He is baptized to identify with sinners, preparing himself. He goes into the wilderness. What is he doing? He is preparing himself. He gathers the disciples unto him and he is preparing himself. Every miracle, every healing, every teaching, everything that Jesus did was to prepare himself for this moment. And when that moment comes, Jesus is ready. Jesus is prepared. That's what he's doing here. He has prepared himself for what he is about to experience, the worst day of his life. Jesus was prepared. Now, the disciples, not so much. The disciples, they were not ready, even though Jesus has already prepared them multiple times. If you know that in Mark, we've already seen three times where Jesus has prophesied his death. Mark chapter 8, he says the son of man will be killed and three days later he will rise again. You know what Peter said? That's never going to happen. And then Jesus turns, rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Like, I thought my name was Peter. No, today you're Satan. Bad day when Jesus calls you Satan. Amen. He does it again in Mark chapter 9 giving a little bit more detail, and it just goes right over their heads. They're like, I have no clue what you're talking about, Jesus. Mark chapter 10, he prepares them yet again. And you know, what, you know what he says? He says, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, beaten, flogged, he will be crucified, and then on the third day, he will rise again. James and John, you know what they say? They say, okay, that's great, but when we get to heaven, can we sit in your gold chair? Can we be the greatest? And Jesus is like, you guys ain't ready. And then here one more time, Friday night, the worst day of his life, he says, I will strike the shepherd. He's talking about his death. The sheep will scatter. Those are the disciples. They will run away. And then three days later, I will rise and I will meet you in Galilee. What is Jesus doing here in that moment? He is preparing his disciples for the worst day of their lives. Think about it if you were the disciples. That the rabbi, the teacher, the leader, the person you have devoted your life to is going to be murdered and you're going to witness it, watch it, and you're going to run away and you're going to fail, you're going to coward, and you're going to hide. This is probably the worst day of the disciples' life too. And so Jesus, for the worst day, he is prepared, but for the disciples on their worst day, they're not ready. They're not prepared. Many of us, we read about the disciples and we think, Oh, how terrible of them. I can't believe that they would deny Jesus. I would never do that. You sound just like Peter. I will never deny you. Yet if we're honest, we shouldn't make fun of the disciples. We should recognize that we are the disciples. Because truthfully, when trauma, hurts, hardships, and difficulties come our way, we respond not like Jesus, but we respond like the disciples. We run away from them. We avoid them. We ignore our problems. We bury our past, and we try to avoid the worst days of our lives. We do no different than what the disciples do. Why? Because you and me, we're not prepared. We're not prepared for pain. That's, all, that's the whole point of being an American, is to try to buy things to avoid pain, to have experiences to avoid pain. That's why we're all addicted to our phones, so that way we can escape the pain of our lives. This is why you stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning watching Lost for the 13th time because you're trying to escape something in your life. This is why you play video games. This is why you give in to alcoholism or 
Go back into your drug addiction. This is why you download pornography or seek relationships with people that you have no business being in relationships with because you're trying to avoid or to escape or to diminish some sort of pain because just like the disciples, you don't want to face it. You're not ready. And so just like the disciples, when pain comes, what do we do? We, we fold like lawn chairs because we can't handle it. I just want to tell you something. I don't know if people have ever told you this before, but you're going to suffer. I know this isn't the sermon you wanted. It's not like you woke up on a Sunday morning and you're like, life changed through Jesus. Oh, let's go to church. And then you hear the sermon where the pastor says, you're going to suffer. You're going to hurt. You're going to have scars. Listen, nobody makes it out of this life alive. I was reading a book called What Doesn't Kill Us, The New Science of Post-Traumatic Growth. And what it says is the average American, more than half will experience acute post-traumatic stress syndrome in their life. Acute, that's not chronic, but that is acute. About a six-month period of every person's life where when you close your eyes, all you do is repeat the worst day of your life over and over and over and over again. Anxiety, insomnia, guilt, shame, repeated patterns of arrested development and stunted emotions. The one thing we all have in common is we'll suffer. The other thing we have in common is we pretend we don't. We're not ready. We're not prepared. And what we see at the beginning of this text, on the worst day of Jesus' life, you know what he's really concerned about? Preparing the people he loves the most. And so what I want to do is I, I just want to help you. I want to take a page out of Jesus' book, and I want to prepare you. I want to prepare you for the suffering that you will experience in this life. The truth is, we're all going to suffer. It's not a question of if you will suffer. That would be nice, wouldn't it? be nice if, if, what do you mean, if I suffer, that would be, a, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And when we do suffer, will we suffer well? Will we suffer alone or will we suffer like Jesus? Because if Jesus had to suffer, guess what? We're going to have to suffer. There's whole theologies built around getting around suffering. Whole entire theologies that don't actually help you be like Jesus. If Jesus didn't get around it, we ain't getting around it. But Jesus went through it so we can go through it and we can come out better on the other side. Amen. And so what I want to do is I just want to help you suffer. I know you never really told, that sounds kind of bad, right? <laughs> I want to help you suffer. But that's kind of what, I don't want to make you suffer, but I do want to help you. And so let me just give you, you like that save? It was good. Uh, let me just give you nine ways that we suffer like Jesus. The first way we suffer is this. It's a, it's a spiritual suffering. Now, Many of us, we're going to have one, two, maybe four or five of these happen throughout the course of our lifetime. Jesus is going to have all nine happening in the same day. And so I want to share with you the first way that we suffer is a spiritual suffering. We're going to dive into this deeper next week as we look at Jesus and Judas, the disciple who betrayed him. But what we've already seen in Mark is this, is that Judas has been filled with Satan. He's made a decision to betray Jesus. He's opened himself up to demonic possession. Satan himself has possessed Judas, which has caused him to make these decisions. 
You need to know that it's not just you and God. There is an enemy who hates you, and his whole goal from the beginning is to thwart God's plan and God's people, to take you out. From Genesis in the first garden, there was a prophecy that from the seed of a woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent, serpent being Satan, the seed of the woman being Jesus. And ever since Genesis 3, Satan has been trying to stop the plan and the people of God. And here he's possessed Judas to be able to attack Jesus. It's not just you and God. There is an enemy who hates you, who wants to kill you, deceive you, destroy you, and take you out and rob you from the destiny that God has for you. Every single one of us will experience a spiritual suffering. The second thing is there's a mental suffering. Mentally, Jesus here, he is suffering. Look at what the text says. In a moment, he is going to cry out and he is going to say, I am deeply troubled. I am distressed. That's anxiety. That's depression. It's fear. Jesus, mentally, this is what's happening in his life. Right now, this is what's happening in a lot of your lives. The number one medication in America is antidepressants. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death. Half of Americans suffer from post-traumatic stress in an acute way. Anxiety is constantly on the rise. I believe I read one, one report that it is more diagnosed now three times the rate than it was 15 years ago. Many of you, and mentally, you are suffering. Jesus gets it. Jesus understands that. He was in the same place in the garden as well. The number three way is there's an emotional suffering. He's crying out. He's weeping. He's crying. We, we've seen verses where it says that Jesus rejoiced, but we've also studied that Jesus has been rejected. The shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. I love what C.H. Spurgeon says. He says that Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. Jesus understands the emotional suffering that we experience in our life. Number four, Jesus goes through financial suffering. Jesus was poor. He was a homeless, traveling, itinerant preacher who had 12 roommates. Like, that's how you know you're poor when you're splitting rent with 12 dudes. Like, that's, that's Jesus, and that's some of y'all's college experience. Amen? He couldn't even afford his burial. We're going to read that he has to borrow a tomb from somebody else because he doesn't have enough money to even be buried. Some of you, that's where you're at. Financially, you're in poverty. Can't pay your bills. Can't pay your rent. Don't know where you're going to get groceries at. Jesus knows. Number five, there's relational suffering. You ever have friends like Peter? I'm never going to fail you. I'm always going to be there for you. And then the moment tragedy happens, what do they do? They gone. <laughs> the Puritans used to refer to these people as swallow friends. That they're there for you in the summer, but when winter comes, they leave. So you get a job, they're like, yay, let's go out for drinks. You're buying. And then when you lose your job, they're like, oh, man, I'm going to leave you on red. You have a baby, they're like, congratulations. And everybody thinks that your baby's their niece and they're their godparent, right? And they all take pictures. Oh, I love your baby. Yeah, but your spouse leaves you. They're like, I will pray for you over here. Awkward. You ever have friends like that? You ever been that friend? Jesus knows the relational suffering that we experience in his life. The people closest to Jesus, they let him down. The people closest to Jesus, they disappointed him. 
And you'll have people who are close to you who will let you down, and you'll let them down, and they'll disappoint you, and you'll disappoint them. Congratulations. You have normal Christian relationships. <laughs> he understands the relational suffering. I mean, his family thinks he's crazy. His brothers reject him. His disciples deny him. Judas betrays him. And he goes to the cross alone. He knows it. That's how you feel. Jesus knows it. The sixth thing we see is there's public suffering. In two weeks, we're going to study how when they bring Jesus to trial, they make false accusations against him. They lie about him. They gossip about him. They, they bring false witness against him. And Jesus endures it all. In the age of social media and digital outrage where everybody can share their side of the story and people believe them because the proverb says everybody sounds right in their own eyes until the other side is heard. And so people can create all these false narratives about why they're the victim and you're to blame and what you've done wrong and how they've been wronged by you. And they can air their grievances online and the whole mob and crowd will jump on their side. Yeah, get them, yeah. But meanwhile... You're suffering publicly and embarrassed because somebody else has said something about you. Jesus gets it. He understands. Number seven, he's going to go through a, a personal suffering as well. This is guilt. This is shame. This is grief. They, they strip Jesus naked. And they put him up there for the entire world to see. They say, you think you're the king of the Jews? Ah, we got you. We're going we're gonna to dress you with a, a, a robe that's dingy and dirty. We're going to take a crown of thorns. We're going to drive them into your head. And when you're hanging on that cross, king of the Jews. And suffering, he, he's suffering personally. They're mocking him. Some of you have been lied about, gossiped about. You've been mocked. You've been ridiculed. You carry grief and shame and embarrassment. And then number eight, what we see is there's physical suffering, pain. Back is beaten bloodied, bruised, flogged, kind of nine tails, dragged across his back. The nerves are exposed. And he's laying in a pool of his own blood and vomit. Most people don't even survive the beating. Jesus, being a tough man, carried the cross to the place of Calvary. They take railroad spikes, drive it through his hands in the most painful center of the body, lift him up publicly, naked, shamefully, in the center of the city, and they kill him. Or outside of the city, rather, but they kill him. Physical pain. Some of you, you experience physical pain. You experience back pain. You wake up in the morning, your back hurts. You go to work, your back hurts. You go down to sleep, your back hurts. You wake up in the morning, 15 years later, your back still hurts. Fibromyalgia, cancer, lupus, Crohn's disease, undiagnosed illnesses you've had since childhood. The medical bills are piling up, but there still is no diagnosis. Physical suffering is very real. Jesus knows and he understands it as well. And that leads to number nine, total suffering. It's death. Just so you know, you will die. Don't know when, don't know how, but it's coming. And many of us, we live our entire lives trying to ignore that truth. That we're going to die. We all think we're Superman, bulletproof. 
Not me. No, you're going to die. You can drink bottled water. You can take your vitamins. You can get the vaccine, wear a mask. You're still going to die. Nobody gets out of life alive. Unless Jesus returns, takes us home, you're going to die. It's unavoidable. It's universal. Suffering is universal. It's the one thing we all have in common. And you can't plan for these things. But you can prepare for them. How did Jesus prepare for his suffering? Every single day he lived his life with meaning. How are you preparing for the suffering that is to come? Every single day, the way that you live is preparation for the worst day of your life. What did Jesus do? He, he sung a hymn. He worshiped. He's singing. He's glorifying God. He knows the Bible. He quotes a prophecy from Zechariah. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will run. He has God's word hidden in his heart. He's surrounded in godly community. He's inviting other people into the process with them. What is Jesus doing? Every single day of his life was preparation for the worst day. I don't know when the worst day of your life is going to come, but you made a really good choice by being here today. You're preparing yourself through worship, through Bible, through community, through wisdom and counsel with other people. Every single day, you're preparing yourself for what you'll do on that worst day. Because the truth is, it's not a matter of if you will suffer. It's a matter of when. And when you suffer, will you suffer like Jesus? Will you suffer in a way that brings hope and glory and strength into your life? It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And when it happens, will you be ready? The disciples, they weren't ready. Jesus was ready. And so he took time to prepare them which led to the second thing, Jesus takes time and he prays. What do you do on the worst day of your life? Where do you go? Where do you run? Where do you turn? Where do you go on the worst day of your life? You know what Jesus does? Jesus goes to God in prayer. See, for many of us, we treat prayer as if it's a, a last resort. In case of emergency, break glass, pray. But Jesus goes to God first. When you're hurting, when you're suffering, listen, it's good to go to a doctor. It's good to go to a counselor. If you need medication, please take some medication. It's an act of God's common grace, his goodness available for all of us. And you can go to the doctor to treat the body. You can go to a counselor to treat the mind, but only God can be able to minister to our souls. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is going to God to let him begin to minister to the innermost needs of our hearts and our minds and our souls. And so he goes to God and he, he prays. Look, look what it says here. And then they went to a place called Gethsemane. That literally means the olive press. And so this is a physical pressing, but at the same time, it's a spiritual pressing that is happening. It's the garden of Gethsemane, the worst day. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with them Peter, James, and John, and he began to become greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. And he goes a little bit further and he fell on the ground and he prayed. If it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, 
Are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour, watch and pray, that you may not enter into temptation? The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and he prayed again, third time, saying the same words. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came to them a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping? Take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. How do you prepare for the worst day of your life? What do you do to get ready? Here's what Jesus does. Jesus prays. Jesus prayed a lot. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen numerous instances and across all four synoptic Gospels, 25 individual accounts of Jesus praying. Everything Jesus did started and ended with prayer. We see Jesus praying before his baptism. We see Jesus praying on the cross. We see Jesus praying publicly. We see Jesus praying privately. We see Jesus pray before he eats. We see Jesus pray after he eats. We see Jesus pray with large crowds. We see him pray with small groups. We see him pray individually. We see him pray with other people. We see Jesus pray in the morning, pray in the evening. Skinnerinky dinky do. Jesus prays. Do you? Jesus prays a lot. And have you ever wondered, like, how did Jesus do it? How did Jesus live the life that he lived? You ever just wonder that? Like, how did Jesus heal the sick? How did Jesus love everyone? I mean, I love people, but everyone? How did Jesus do all of the amazing, incredible things that he did in his life? And here's what we think. We think it's because he's God. Jesus did it because he's God. Of course Jesus can do those things because Jesus is God. Okay, that's true, but it's not entirely true because not only is Jesus God, very God of very God, Jesus is also fully man. He's not half God, half man, like a demigod. He's not like Superman, Clark Kent in the day and Superman by night. And he's not fighting with one arm tied behind his back. Jesus, fully God, fully man. I love what Augustine, the early church father, says. He says that in the incarnation, Jesus didn't cease being God, but rather he added to his divinity humanity, God in the flesh. So Jesus is fully God, but at the same time, we recognize Jesus is also fully man. That Jesus has limitations in his life. Like he can't be everywhere all the time. He's limited to certain space. He can't talk to anyone. No, he's limited by where he can go and the people he can be with. He has to sleep. He has to, we even see him take naps on a boat in the middle of a hurricane. Jesus needed a nap because he's, he's human. We see him eat. We see him drink. We see him laugh. We see him have relationships. We see him build healthy relationships. We see the limitations on Jesus' life. And in this moment, Jesus has reached the end of his limitations in his humanity. And you know what he does? He prays. Now, here's my question for you. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray in our lives? Because here's what Jesus understood, is that prayer is the secret 
to strength. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down. Prayer is the secret to Jesus's strength. How did Jesus love everyone? He prayed. How did Jesus serve everyone? He prayed. How did Jesus do the things that he did? He prayed. And how does Jesus endure the worst day of his life? What does he do? He prays. And so if Jesus needs to pray on his worst day, then you and me, we need to pray on our day. And so what I want to do is I want to help you and learn to pray like Jesus. I want to help you walk through five lessons that we see through Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because on the worst day of Jesus' life, he's going to teach us how to pray. I want you to use this as a template, a guide, and a model for you in the moment of crisis, in the moment of pain, in the moment of hurt, in the moment of hardship, in the moment of darkness and difficulty. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray. And I want you to pray like Jesus. So here's, here's five lessons that we learn from the garden. The first lesson we learn is this, is that suffering is a school that we all attend. A lot of this comes from a book called Spirit-Filled Jesus by Mark Driscoll. I highly recommend you guys to pick it up and read it. But he has a chapter over this, and it's so insightful to understanding suffering. That suffering is a school that we, we all attend. See, some people, they look at suffering like it's a courtroom. Like God is a judge up in heaven who is just waiting to smite you. And so the moment you do something wrong, the moment things go wrong, the moment you experience suffering, you're like, God, why are you doing this to me? God, what have I done? God, why are you punishing me? That's what a lot of people think, that when we're suffering, God is punishing us. Like as if God's like a drunk deadbeat heavenly father up in heaven who anytime you mess up, he's just waiting to kick you. It's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God that we serve. The most tragic thing that I ever heard was a friend of mine, when we first became Christians, we were hanging out talking. His mom died of cancer. And then a, a pastor came to town, said, the reason your mom died is because she had unrepentant sin. And he rejected the faith because of that. Now today he's a Christian and today he loves Jesus. Today he understands that that's evil. But that's what a lot of people think. That God is punishing us when we have suffering. Now here, here's, what I, here's what I think. I don't believe that God is the source of our suffering. I know I'm getting into some theological issues right now. And I don't have time to work all of these things out. But here's what I do know. I don't think God is the source of the suffering that we face in this life. Do you know why? Because that's not God's original design. We've got to bring everything back to the garden, from one garden to the other. God created this world, and he said, it's good. He made Adam and Eve, and he said, ah, very good. That's God's original design. And he placed them in a garden known as Eden. You know what the word Eden means in the Hebrew? Delight, joy. God made us for delight. God made us for joy. And we say, well, what happened? Well, very quickly, the story of the Bible goes from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. Sin enters into the world. At first parents, Adam and Eve, they sin, they fall, they rebel. They separate themselves from God. And then death, disease, destruction, chaos, disorder, devastation, all of that is unleashed in the world. And suffering becomes normative to the Christian experience. It's not the way that God intended but it is what we experience. I do not believe that God is the cause of our suffering. 
I can't just imagine, like as a father, me looking down at my daughter and saying, I'm so glad you were born. My plan is for you to be abused in life. I just don't think that's what God's intention is. And so many people, we think that God's punishing us. What is Jesus struggling with here in Mark chapter 14? It, it, it's, it's, it's the cup. Do you know what the cup is? The cup is God's wrath. See, we hate sin. That's why everybody on social media is a warrior against somebody else right now. Because we, we hate sin. We don't like talking about it, but we do hate it. And so we hate sin, but God hates sin more. God hates sin. It's called wrath. And God is a God of wrath because God is holy, God is just, God is righteous, God is pure. And every sin ever committed since Adam and Eve, all the way down to you and me, the big sins, like war, genocide, rape, every sin for billions of people, every big sin and every little sin, every time you lied, cheated, stolen, disrespected, gossiped, every sin, big and small, it's a drop in that cup. Thousands of years, billions of people all across the world, every sin committed goes in the cup. And it's filling up and storing up for God's wrath on the day of judgment. And one day somebody's gonna have to drink that cup. This is what Jesus is crying about because he doesn't want to drink the cup to bear the weight of the sins for the entire world. One person bearing the full weight of the wrath of God, experiencing the blast of God's judgment. One person bearing all of that. Don't drink the cup. If this cup can pass from me. God says, nope, somebody's got to drink the cup. See, the truth is, if, if you're, you only have two choices. Either you drink the cup or you let Jesus drink the cup for you. This is the gospel message. Either you pay for the penalty of your sins or you let Jesus pay for the penalty of your sins. Either you bear the wrath of God or you let Jesus stand in your place and let him receive the wrath of God. For those of you who are Christians, I want you to hear me on this. I want you to listen to me on this. In the garden, you see what Jesus is doing? He's drinking the cup. So that way, when you die and you stand before God, your cup is empty. That's why God's not punishing you. Because on the cross, the gavel of the judge, not guilty. Not guilty. Your cup is empty. And now when God pours out his cup, there is no wrath for you. When we suffer as Christians, God is not punishing you because it would be unjust. It would be cruel. It would be unholy for God to punish Jesus and you for the same crime. It's not how it works. For those of you who are in Christ Jesus, now there is no more condemnation for you. 
Your sins have been forgiven. You have been washed and rinsed, declared righteous by the blood of Jesus. He goes to the cross, dies in your place for your sins. And in the garden, he drank your cup. No wrath for those in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you can drink the cup. It's really only two options. So that means that for us as believers, suffering is not a courtroom, but rather suffering is a classroom. It's a classroom where we learn. Hebrews just come into mind right now is that Jesus was perfected through his suffering. Romans chapter 5 says, suffering produces hope and hope will not lead us to shame. Suffering is a classroom where we learn to depend on God, where we learn to trust him, where we learn to let him take our hand through those gardens and lead us into becoming a better version of ourselves. So the question is, God, why are you doing this to me? Because we all suffer for various reasons. One reason we suffer is because we live in a broken and fallen world. Sin, death, and disease, just natural. The other reason we suffer is from the hands of other people. Some of you have suffered tremendously from the hands of other people. And another reason we suffer is because we do it to ourselves. Like sometimes we like to point the finger at God while we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Like you can't blame God for all of your problems. You need to take some responsibility for yourself. We live in a whole generation who loves to blame God and then they don't like taking responsibility for their own actions. They were everybody else's fault. It's everybody else's fault. Oh, I had a bad hand dealt to me. It's my parents' fault. It's the job's fault. It's my church's fault. Right? It's my Enneagram's fault. Oh, I can't believe it. It's just my personality. It's nobody's. No, it's your fault. You've got to take responsibility for your own actions. Sometimes you sin because we live in a broken, fallen world. Sometimes you sin because, well, you've been sinned against. Other times you sin just because you're a sinner. And so you need to allow suffering to teach you, to show you and allow Jesus to lead you because suffering is a school that we all attend. Which leads to the second point. Sorrow is not sin. Jesus cries out and he says, my soul is greatly distressed even until the point of death. He is distressed and he's distraught. You know what that is? That's anxiety. That's depression. Jesus, he is sorrowful. Being sad is not a sin. Did Jesus ever sin? No. Was Jesus ever sad? Yes. Being sad is not a sin. We have this in the church. When people walk in the doors on, on church on Sunday, they're like, how's it going, brother? How you doing? Oh, blessed and highly favored. And we go to our small groups and we have all the right biblical answers and we can quote a verse, very much like putting a Band-Aid on the bullet wound of our souls. How are you today, brother? Ah, oh, I'm fine, brother. No, you're not. See, listen, Jesus is not lying here. Jesus is honest. I'm sorrowful to the point of death. A good friend of mine is walking through a divorce right now. He's devastated. Another friend of mine, their grandparents died. He's devastated. 
A woman in my small group has lupus, and she's sick again, and she can't be here. She's probably watching online right now. I love you. And we're walking through it with our small group and the pain and the tragedy. Some of you have terrible things that have happened to you. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to feel. It's okay to have emotions. Jesus had them too. You don't have to fake and pretend and go through life just quoting Bible verses like you're Zig Ziglar while on the inside you are suffering tremendously. Jesus is sad. Jesus is sorrowful. But Jesus never sinned. I was teaching this in the men's prayer meeting a few months ago, and there was a guy, and he said, wait, you mean I can, like, tell God how I really feel? I said, yeah. He's like, well, I thought that God wouldn't hear my prayers if I was honest with him about that. I thought I had to come to him in faith. And so anything that was not faith, I didn't think God would answer that prayer. I said, listen to me, man. Honest prayers are the only prayers God hears. He already knows everything. It's not like he's looking down going, oh, my, me, I didn't know. No, God knows. He understands. And he wants to be there with you in the middle of that. It's not sin to be sad. But it's a sin to pretend. Because you're limiting what God can do in your life. He said, I'm, I'm greatly distressed and troubled. Are you? Be honest with God about that. The, the third thing we see in his prayer is this. We see that solitude and isolation are not the same. It says, wait here while I pray. And then he goes and he prays. Jesus, in this moment, he gets alone. But it's different. Isolation is where you run from your problems. Isolation is where you just get alone by yourself and you begin to beat yourself up. You ever been there? It's isolation. Push away anybody who loves me. Life is hard. I can't go to church anymore. Oh, I'm sad. I can't go to small group tonight. Let's just push the world away and let's just take the wet blanket that is our emotions and just wrap them all over ourselves. You know what that is? That's isolation. Isolation is where you get alone with your thoughts. And sometimes you're the biggest enemy of your own self. And so you isolate, you retreat, and you withdraw, and you get alone. And then you just start tearing yourself down. That's not what God wants for you in moments of pain. In moments of pain, instead of isolating, we need to practice solitude. What's Jesus doing? He's practicing solitude. Wait here while I pray. Instead of running from his problems, he runs to his father. That's the difference between isolation and solitude. We don't want to run from our problems. We want to run to the Father. He says, Abba, Father. That word Abba is an Aramaic term, which means daddy. It's what a small child would refer to their father. He says, daddy, dad, father, Abba, father, I'm crying out to you. He's not avoiding his problems. He's not isolating himself. What is he doing? He's bringing his problems to the Father because only the Father can meet the greatest need that he has in his life. He is not isolating, but he is practicing solitude. Isolation is where you get along with the devil who beats you up, but solitude is when you get along with the father who builds you up. And I get so worried for some of you because when trauma or pain happens in your life, you know what you do? You isolate yourself. 
You run away. You dip on your small group. You decline on your planning center. You skip three weeks of church because you think that you can figure it out and beat it on your own, and you end up beating yourself up the entire time. And then you come back in, and you're too scared to come back to church. And so it goes three, six weeks that we don't see you. People are reaching out to you, and now you feel all bothered by them. Why do they keep texting me? Oh, it's because we love you. And we don't want you to isolate yourself. We want you to practice solitude and come back with strength. Isolation and solitude are different, which leads to number four. The fourth thing we read is this, is that submission is an answer to prayer. Uh, Look what he says here. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will, your will be done. How many times did Jesus pray this prayer? Three times. What is he doing here? He's trying to align his will with God's will. Jesus here, he's coming to a place of submission. He knows he has to drink the cup. And here's what you need to understand about the cup. is the cup is not just the wrath of God for the sins of the world. The cup is also separation from God. Sin brings separation. That's what we see throughout the scripture. Sin brings separation. It separates you from God, but when someone or you sin against another, what does it do? It separates that relationship too. So sin brings separation. And so when Jesus has to drink the cup, you know what he's experiencing? Separation from God, the Father, for the first time. The Trinity, eternity past, Father, Son, Spirit, in equal unity, harmony, and relationship with one another. For thousands or billions and eternity past, all Jesus knows is perfect unity with God the Father. And when he drinks that cup, the Father's going to turn his back on the Son. Broken fellowship. That's what Jesus experienced. Now, throughout Jesus' life, he never got married. He never was intimate with a woman. He never had children. And his friends probably weren't the best of friends for him. The only person he had real genuine relationship with was God. And now in a moment, he's going to be separated from his father for three days as he suffers, dies, and is buried alone in a grave. And he's suffering. And God says, drink the cup. He says, I don't want to. God says, no, you got to drink this cup. He says, all things are possible for you. Can you remove the cup? He says, we've talked about this. You gotta drink the cup. This has been the plan since the beginning of the foundations of the world that the son would be slain. Drink the cup. He said, I don't know if I can do it. He said, it's okay. I'll just set the cup down. Why don't you come talk to me? So Jesus goes and talks to the father. He says, God, is there any other way? Father says, no but if you want to talk about it, I'm here for you. And so he says, okay, not my will. I need to talk about it again, God. Can we we talk about it again? He says, sure, I'd love to. Jesus starts praying through it again. Is there any other way? No. Okay. And then he goes to him a third time. Can we talk about it again? Listen, it's okay to pray the same thing over and over again. Listen, God doesn't need you to pray the same thing over and over again. You need to pray the same thing over and over again. Because sometimes you can't just pray about it and walk away. You've got to keep working through it. Like, I many of you parents, you're like, I told my kids to clean their room when they're three. Never have to do that again. No, what do you have to do? You have to keep talking about it. And what is this? We see this as submission. 
Three times Jesus prays, not your will, but my, not my will, but your will be done. What is he doing? He's coming into submission with God. And submission's not easy. Submission doesn't mean you agree. Right? If you want to go eat lunch after church, me too. Oh, I'm going to submit. No, we agree on that. Like, do you want ice cream? Me too. Oh, submission's so hard. It's not hard when you want the same thing. Submission is when two people want something differently, and then one person diverts to the authority of the other. Jesus here is diverting to the authority of the Father. He says, I just don't know if I can do this, but not my will, but your will be done. And he's processing this moment. I want you to understand something, is that pray, praying is where we process our pain. Where do you go when you're hurting? What do you do? How do you process your pain? Do you drink alcohol? Smoke weed? Do you take it out on your children? Do you ignore your spouse? Pick up extra hours at work so you don't have to go home? What do you do? How do you, how do you process your pain? Do you stuff it down and do you bury it? Or do you bring it to God and say, God, I need to talk about this. Prayer is where we begin to process our emotions and feelings and pain. And instead of taking it out on other people or taking it out on ourselves, we take it to God in prayer and we begin to work through and process the pain until we reach to a place where we are able to pray this dangerous prayer, not my will, but your will be done. I teach on prayer a lot at the church. So like one of the things that we do, first Wednesday prayer nights are becoming some of the most popular nights that we have. And they're actually becoming almost as well attended as our Sunday services. First Wednesday prayer nights are incredible. And I teach on prayer a lot because I have a heart for prayer for us as a church. And one of the things that I teach on prayer is this, God answers every single prayer that you ever pray. God answers every single prayer that you pray. God just answers different ways. Yes, no, and maybe. In this moment, God tells Jesus no. Some of your heads just exploded. He says, no, there is no other way. But here's what you got to understand, is that prayer is not trying to change God's mind. That's what a lot of people think. Oh, I just need to change God. <laughs> Good luck. Prayer is not where we change God. Prayer is where God changes us. Prayer is not us trying to bend God's will to ours, but rather prayer is where we bend our will to his. Prayer is not a vending machine where you push some buttons and out pops the answer. Prayer is not, God is not a genie where we rub the prayer lamp and he grants our wishes. God is a father who listens and cares and answers our prayers. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says later. Right now, God is saying no. And Jesus says, I need to talk about this. I'm not ready for this. And so he prays again and again and again until eventually his will and God's will aligns. I grew up in a denomination that taught praying this prayer means that you don't really believe God answers prayers. Uh, my, my tradition where I was trained and discipled under, they said, don't pray if your will be done, because if you pray that, that means you don't really believe God's going to answer that prayer. That if you pray this, if you're praying for healing, Lord, Father, would you just heal this person if it be your will? They say, well, when, as soon as you prayed that, you just negated your faith. Or if you're going to pray for a job, they say, God, give me a job. Let your will be done. They would say, nope, that just means you don't really have enough faith and you're double-minded and unstable in all of your ways because you don't really believe in what you just prayed. 
I grew up in a tradition that taught that. And I believed that for a long time. But the more that I study, the more that I read, the more that I understand the, the prayer is this, is that this is probably the most powerful prayers that you can pray because it is the only prayer that God always answers. Your will be done. God answers that prayer. Listen, if you believe that God is good, then you won't have a problem praying, your will be done. If you believe that God is for you, then you won't have a problem praying, your will be done. If you believe that God wants best for you, that God's smarter than you, that God has great good in store for your life, if you believe that God is a father who loves you and is always there for you, who will never leave you, never abandon you, never forsake you, if you believe that his forgiveness is available, that his grace is extended to you, if you believe that favor ain't fair, then you won't have a problem praying, let your will be done. If you believe like the saying says God is good and all the time God is good, then you won't have a problem praying, let your will be done because you know he is good to you. And so prayer is where we begin to go and we work through this because sometimes our theology and reality don't line up. And if you can't get to that place where you say, God, let your will be done. If you can't get to that place, what do you do? You keep praying until you can. You don't pray one time and walk away. You keep praying, 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 and you keep praying until eventually you reach a place of submission. And then you realize in that moment, submission is an answer to your prayers. Which leads to the fifth point is that strength comes from being honest about our weaknesses. I love what Luke actually adds a little greater detail. He says this, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven. What is it doing? It's strengthening him. In the moment of Jesus' greatest weakness, he gets along with God and he is honest to God about his emotions, about his feelings, about his pain, about his problems. He gets along with God and God sends an angel. What does he do? He strengthens him. Listen, prayer doesn't make you weak. Prayer is the secret to your strength. At the end of every service, we have a prayer team up front. And we offer altar time. And I can't tell you how many people I pray with on a Sunday in the office because they're too scared to come to the altars. They meet me on the way out, tears running down their face. They, 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 they're walking out with the same thing they walked in with because they're too scared to come down to the altar to so let people pray for them. Because you think that getting prayer means you're weak. What do people see me? What do people judge me? What do people think that there's something wrong with my life? It just goes to show you're a human Prayer doesn't make you weak. Prayer is the secret to Jesus' strength. It doesn't take a weak person to come down front. It takes a strong person to come down front. In your small group, when you're sharing prayer requests, take a strong person to admit what's really going on in your life. It doesn't make you weak. It means you're strong and you're inviting people into the pain so that God can then begin to bring your healing for that. So after the service, don't leave. If right now you're just feeling it, the tension bottle up inside of your chest, if you're feeling this moment and this pain and you're entering into the garden of Gethsemane right now, don't get up and go out to eat. Come down to the altars and get some strength. White knuckling your seat, coming to church and leaving empty? Don't do that to yourself. If you need prayer, we've been praying for you all week. We're available for all week. Who knows? As you come down here and you're honest with your weakness, you might get an angel that touches you and gives you the strength that Jesus got in the garden. What do you do? You prepare and then you pray. 
And the last thing we do is this, we persevere. I want you to know something. It's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay for you to stay that way. This is the reason we pray. I just want to show you the, 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 the process that Jesus goes through. Because some of y'all, y'all haven't processed anything when it comes to your emotions, your feelings, or your past traumas. You know how I know that? Because you can't talk about it. You say, that's in my past. No, it's not. If it's in your past, then you can talk about it. But what you're doing is you're dragging the past into the present. Eventually, that past is going to become your future too. This is why you start repeating the same cycles and seasons. This is why you go from relationship to relationship, from church to church. This is why you go from job to job. This is why you go from hurt to hurt, trauma to trauma, because all you know how to do is repeat the patterns of your past. You don't know how to get breakthrough. You don't know how to repent, and you don't know how to move forward. That's why you're 40 and you're still acting like you're 20. Because you haven't processed anything. You've buried it, you've covered it, and you quoted a Bible verse and you thought everything was going to be okay. It's not. If you can't talk about your past, you're not past it. You're just dragging it into your future. Look what Jesus says here. He says, rise, get up, let's be going. My betrayer is at hand. Here's how, here's how it works. It starts with suffering. Then it moves down to sorrow. And then it goes to solitude. And then it comes back up to submission and it ends with strength. If you don't get alone with God in prayer, here's what happens. You go from suffering to sorrow to suffering again to sorrow, and you never get the healing and breakthrough you need to rise because you just start repeating the same pattern over and over, and prayer is where we break the cycle. Jesus wants you to get up. It's okay to be in these moments, it's okay. If you've never been here, you're not healthy. You're living in la-la land. Nothing bad has ever happened to me. I'm better than Jesus. If you're always here, you're in really grave trouble because you've never experienced inner healing and deliverance in your life. You've never had Jesus take your hand through sorrow and suffering and pain and come back on the other side strong. And so you gotta let Jesus walk you through the garden to go from suffering, sorrow, Let's talk about this. Okay, let's get to a place of submission and let's let you be better on the other side through strength. Jesus perseveres. What he does is he says, rise up. My betrayer is at hand. The worst day of Jesus' life. Judas betrays him with a kiss. Peter denies him. The rest of the book of Mark is nothing but Jesus getting beaten, being bloodied, being battered, being bruised, being murdered. The worst day of Jesus' life. But here's what we see. On Jesus' worst day, it becomes our best day. Because Jesus goes through all of that. So when we suffer, we don't suffer pointlessly. We suffer with him by our side, even in the middle of it as well. Because on the cross, Jesus, he takes our worst and he gives us his best. The worst day of Jesus' life becomes the best day of our lives. It's the day that we are forgiven. It's the day that we are saved. It's the day that we get grace. It's the day that we get hope. It's the day that we get mercy. It's the day that our sins 
sins are cast as far as the east is to the west. It's the day that the cup was drank and the wrath of God was poured out. And when the judge sees us, he says, not guilty. His worst day becomes our best day. It's a grand reversal from Genesis in the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. For by one man came death, and by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Where Adam was, was Adam failed, Jesus was victorious. Both men were in a garden. One sinned and one suffered because of our sin. Adam turned from God, but Jesus turned to God. Adam isolated himself with Satan. Jesus got solitude with his father. Adam was naked and unashamed. Jesus was naked and he bore our shame. Adam substituted himself for God. Jesus substituted himself for us. Through Adam comes death and in Adam all die, but through Jesus all are made alive. The worst day of Jesus' life becomes the best day of our life. God takes our worst, he meets us at our worst, and in that moment, he gives us his best. He gives us himself. If you have shame, he will give you salvation. If you are racked with guilt, he will give you grace. If you have separation, he brings you reconciliation. Jesus takes our worst and he gives us his best. And that's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus goes to the cross in our place for our sins, suffers the wrath of God for us so that in him and through him we can be made alive. That's the good news of the gospel. That God takes our worst and he gives us his best. So my question for you, Redemption, three questions as we close. What do we do? How do we prepare? Today, how are you going to prepare for the worst day? You can't plan for it, but you can prepare for it. This could be reading your Bible starting a morning devotional, spending your mornings in prayer. Maybe it's going to next steps, joining a serve team, joining a small group, preparing yourself for when that day comes. The second thing is we pray. First Wednesday prayer night, come down to the altars, receive prayer, pray in your small group, walk through the pain and the process by developing a prayer life. And then lastly, number three, persevere. Get up, rise up. If you're in it, let Jesus lead you through it. It could be six months. It could be five years. It could be 10 years. I don't know how long it takes, but you got to persevere. Don't stay stuck in the garden. Let Jesus walk you through the garden of Gethsemane. I love that the Bible doesn't just show us the best days of Jesus' life. Here's Jesus on a mountain. Here's Jesus water skiing without a boat. Here's Jesus feeding 5,000 people with a ham sandwich. He doesn't do that. What does he do instead? He says, hey, let me show you the worst day of my life so I can help you for when you go through yours.